super excited about my time in God's Word this week. Excited to be able to share with you some of the overflow of that time. And I want to introduce you to a new word this morning. It is perhaps the single greatest word ever spoken in human history, and that's no exaggeration. It's a satisfying word, one of achievement and freedom and victory. It is the word tetelestai. Say it with me, tetelestai. And I contend that this word, when spoken by Jesus and used in the way He intended on the cross, this word is beyond compare. Charles Simeon comments on this word, Since the foundation of the world, there, was never, there never was a single word uttered in which such diversified and important matter was contained. Every word, indeed, that proceeded from our Savior's lips deserves the most attentive consideration, but tetelestai eclipses all. To do justice to it is beyond the ability of men or angels. Its height and depth and length and breadth are absolutely unsearchable. A.C. Gabeline said, Never before and never after was ever spoken one word which contains and means so much. It is the shout of the mighty victor, And who can measure the depths of this one word? A.W. Pink adds, Eternity will be needed to make manifest all that Tetelestai contains. And then finally, Charles Spurgeon has said, this is a bit lengthy, so I put it up here for you. An ocean of meaning and a drop of language, a mere drop, for that is all that we can call one word. Tetelestai. Yet it would need all the other words that ever were spoken or ever can be spoken to explain this one word. It is altogether immeasurable. Finished. It was a conqueror's cry. It was uttered with a loud voice. There's no anguish in it. There's no wailing in it. It is the cry of one who has completed a tremendous labor and is about to die. And before he utters his death prayer... Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He shouts his life's last hymn in that one word to Telestai. This Greek word to Telestai translates into three words in English the words, it is finished. And these are among the very last words spoken by Jesus while He hung on the cross, uttered just mere seconds before He gave up His Spirit and died. And as last words or lasting words, the significance of this statement will endure forever because Jesus finished His divine work on the, on the cross. Because Jesus finished His divine work in absolute trust, triumph we are free to follow Him in absolute trust. So let's read this together. John chapter 19. I'll read 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing all that all was now finished, 
said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst, and a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Our great and our good God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the enormous privilege of these moments we share week after week, these moments we share today, that we gather in your name as your people to declare your worth. Already we have sung psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to encourage one another and to give the praise that that exists and resides even deep within, to give it voice, the gratitude and thankfulness of our hearts, to give, to give it voice, to say that you are good and all that you do is good. We thank you. We thank you for all that you have done and are doing and have promised to do on our behalf. We thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ. All that that implies and entails. And so this morning as we come to your word to consider just one verse and really just one statement in this one verse. Oh, we ask that you would speak it to us with clarity and Conviction, hope. We pray for the enabling of the Holy Spirit this morning. That you, O Spirit of God, would enable us. That you would enable me in my speaking. And that I'd be true to your word. You'd enable all of us in our hearing that we would so desire to hear your word. And that we'd lean in close, as it were, and really listen to your voice, or that we'd sit back and just take it all in. Mostly that we'd receive it. Even as we receive Christ and be forever changed because of it. We ask this in His name. Amen. So this morning I want to unpack this statement in three ways, considering the questions, what was finished? When was it finished? And why is it important that it was finished? Before closing with some personal implications. First, what exactly was finished? As Jesus uttered this statement, what was he making? What was he marking the completion of? In short, full atonement for sin had been made because the price, the full price of our redemption had been paid. It's important to know this word redemption. It comes from the Latin word meaning to buy again or to buy back or to regain possession of in exchange for payment. The Bible uses this word to describe how God has paid the necessary price to buy us back from our sins. We live in a fallen world. 
And since the fall itself, all are in bondage to sin, to sin's power and penalty. And if we are to be freed, we must be purchased out of that bondage. Christ's death does just that. Christ's death was not for Him, but for us. A sacrifice was made, a substitution was made. The entire sacrificial system of the ancient world pointed to this. Prior to Christ's death, the the people attempted to atone for their own sins by offering uh, an animal sacrifice to God, typically a bull or goat that essentially died in substitution, died in their place. Not that God delighted in the death of the animal, not at all. Or even that the blood of animals could ever take away our sins. That wasn't the point. Instead, the whole sacrificial system pointed to something greater and much more significant. That God is holy. That sin is deadly. And that if we are to be brought back into communion with our Creator, atonement for sin is necessary. The Lord had a task to complete. A divine and enormous task that only He could complete. From before the foundations of the world, He alone was to bear the sins of the world. From the very first sin in Eden, He was to redeem fallen sinners. From that very first prophecy in Genesis 3, He was to serve as our sacrifice, our substitute, and our victor. From the moment of His birth and throughout His life, He was to save sinners back to God by dying in our place, by the mercy and grace and love of God. It was decided within the Godhead that Jesus would suffer sin's penalty so that we wouldn't have to. And now in the moment of His death, He knew that all was now finished. And exactly when was it finished? It says it is finished, not was or will be, but is, which speaks to this once for all nature of the atonement that Jesus accomplished on the cross. You might recall that throughout his ministry, Jesus talked about the hour of his death. That is the the time of his crucifixion and that specific time had now come. The appointed time at which God Himself would offer the ultimate sacrifice for all wrongdoing forever. People of ages past longed for this hour. They offered sacrifice after sacrifice, year after year. But it only served to remind them and now us that our sin offerings are insufficient. Sin runs so deep and so mars us that even our best efforts, even our best offering as sincere as it may be, cannot get to sin's root or remove sin's stain. And so because sin breaks union with God, the only way to repair and restore this most precious relationship was for God to do what we could never do. And so by the goodness of God, Jesus Christ became the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Hebrews 9 says He appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. 1 Peter 3 says, 
He suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That He might bring us to God. Everything hinged on His finishing of this work. The entire Old Testament pointed to the, in this direction. Prophecies awaited their fulfillment in this statement. Everything in the Gospels leads to this, and all the epistles look back upon it. That great task for which Christ was born was accomplished at this very moment. The very reason He came into our world was actualized. Atonement, full atonement for sin had finally been made. The full price of our redemption had finally been paid. Jesus paid it all once and for all. Now, why is this important? Because that Jesus finished the work on the cross means there is nothing to add to it or remove from it. Nothing, listen, nothing, nothing was left undone. It is finished indeed. And yet, how often are we trying to add to the work? How often are we trying to somehow improve upon it? As the late elder D.J. Ward of the Main Street Baptist Church in Lexington, Kentucky once put it, the death of Christ was not an attempt, but an accomplishment. And when one accomplishes something, it means that somewhere they had to have an assignment. Well, what was the assignment? Foretelling Christ's birth, the angel said, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Not attempt to save, not try to save, not wish or hope to save. No, he will save his people from their sins. I've heard it said that God helps those who help themselves. Suggesting that God has done all that we can do while the rest is up to you. God has done all that He can do while the rest is up to you. But but listen, church, if the rest is up to you, He didn't do it. He didn't accomplish it. If anything is up to you, Jesus didn't finish it. And if it isn't finished, if Jesus didn't accomplish this work, then we best stop saying or singing that Jesus paid it all. He may have paid some, but not all. He may even have paid most, but still not all. For if I need to contribute, if you need to contribute anything to this work, then it is neither accomplished nor paid. And if it isn't paid... 
then we're here in vain this morning. You can have all the religion you want, all the morality you want, all the God talk you want, but if Jesus didn't pay it all, your religion and your moral deeds and your God talk doesn't mean squat. And worse yet, if Jesus didn't accomplish this work, and thus pay the full price of our redemption, then you remain in bondage to sin and under its penalty of death and are therefore destined for hell, separated from God forever. But because He did do it, because He finished this work, just as He said He would, He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need your contribution. He doesn't need your best. By the love of God, your sins have been atoned and Jesus Christ stands as your Savior, your mediator, your advocate. I ask you, did He accomplish it? Did He fail? Do we need another to come after Him? No, 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 no. Every sin I ever committed, every sin I ever thought about committing, every sin I ever will commit, He paid it all. He paid it all. He nailed it to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Is it well with your soul this morning? And so when he declares it is finished, he means just that. That he left nothing undone. And as the author of Hebrews puts it, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so we've basically considered or explored each part of the statement, it is finished. It refers to the work of Christ. Is speaks to the certainty of the accomplishment. And finish means that there's nothing left undone. It's completed to the full. But again, this is just a one-word declaration in the original language, the word tetelestai. And so I want to consider with you now in the moments we have left what this one word means for us today, or at least some of what this one word means for us today. Obviously, it means everything. But how does knowing that this work is finished, how does knowing this affect our lives? What changes because of this one word? How will we be different when we leave this building this morning because of this one word? I want to give you four ways that to tell us I ought to change our lives. And we could go on, but for the sake of time, I offer these four. First, it should change the way we view guilt and forgiveness. Second, it should change the way we view holiness. Third, it should change the way we view suffering. 
And fourth, it should change the way we view life itself. So number one, it should change the way we view forgiveness, guilt and forgiveness. One way this word was used back in the day was in business transactions, particularly when a debt was involved. And so when someone accumulated debt, they didn't repay, they were thrown into debtor's prison until it was repaid. Well, there's a dilemma. You can see the problem here. Because they were in prison, they were unable to work to earn the money necessary to pay the debt. And so the only way, their only hope of release was if someone else paid it for them. Or if the debt was just canceled entirely. Well, the Bible likens sin to a record of debt. Every time we transgress God's law, we go into deeper debt. It's like making a purchase with your credit card. At the time of the purchase, the debt doesn't seem like a big deal. But when the bill comes due, you realize you're on the hook for every single expense. And the same is true with sin. Every unkind word, every lustful thought, every deed done or not done in disobedience to God. With each sin, the the record of debt grows. Spiritually speaking, we are all drowning in debt. We're in debtor's prison with no hope of ever getting out unless someone moves on our behalf. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ says that you who were dead in your trespasses, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside and nailed it to the cross. So, what does that mean? One thing it means is that the next time Satan comes to you to read your record of sin and overwhelm you with guilt and shame, Remember where it has been left. At the cross of Jesus Christ. And there at the cross, stamped in bold, blood-stained letters across your record, is just one word. Tetelestai. Paid in full. The cross is where sin debts go to die place of reconciliation and renewal and because this changes how we view our own guilt and the forgiveness we have received from God hear this it should also change our view of others guilt and how to forgive them 
This is the gist of the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, that you who have been forgiven so great a debt should likewise forgive others who are just a teeny bit indebted to you. It's a clear implication of the gospel to forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. That's repeated in the epistles over and over and over again. To tell us thy changes our relationships with God and others. Concerning our relationship with God, the cross is a place of forgiveness. And concerning our relationship with others, it's at the cross where we discover the power to forgive. Is there anyone here, anyone here today, if anyone here today is feeling overwhelmed by sin, look to the cross and to the Christ of the cross who paid your debt in full. Now, in the same vein, if anyone here is withholding forgiveness from another Christian brother or sister, you too should look to the cross and to the Christ of the cross who paid their debt too. To tell us that I should change our view of forgiveness. Number two. To tell us that I should change our view of holiness. Forgiveness from sin and restored relationship with God is a free gift from God. You can do nothing to earn this gift. And once you receive it, it is yours forever by His grace. But hear this, we mustn't confuse free grace with cheap grace. Free grace is not cheap grace. Though this gift is free to us, God Himself paid the highest possible price. This gift came at nothing less than the life and death of Jesus Christ. And, be such, and because such a high price was paid, we should treat it right. With the utmost respect and appreciation, holding it in high regard, we should walk in holiness before God and others. We don't talk a lot about holiness. That's to our detriment. Your good works don't add anything to the work of Christ, but they do reveal your appreciation for it. 1 Peter 1, we're told, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Why? For we were ransomed, Peter continues, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. This reveals the heart of God. This reveals the love of God. And yet here we see also, as nowhere else, just how holy is God's heart. That God would go to such great lengths to deal with sin and free us from it shows just how much He hates it. So as His redeemed people, 
Let's not casually accept or invite sin into our lives. Let's not entertain it. Let's, let's see if we can get how close we can get to the line. If you have a line, if, you, if, there's, a, is there, if there's a mental line, you're already too close. Does tetelestai mean that Christ so satisfied God's holiness that holiness doesn't matter? Of course not. So let it change our view of holiness and encourage our pursuit of it. Number three. Tetelestai should change our view of suffering. We live in a broken world, a world broken by sin, where sin's effects are felt daily and where suffering is very real. No one likes to suffer. And so when we do, we sometimes question God, even silently, secretly. We wonder if God is punishing us for some specific sin or if evil has somehow gained the upper hand. When bad things happen, we understandably read it as disaster. And yet, God, through the crucifixion of His Son, in His divine goodness and eternal wisdom, chose the worst thing that has ever happened to become the best thing that has ever happened. In his, in his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller writes about the upside-down pattern of the cross. I want to share this with you. The pattern of the cross means that the world's glorification of power, might, and status is exposed and defeated. On the cross, Christ wins through losing, triumphs through defeat, achieves power through weakness and service, comes to wealth via giving all away. Jesus Christ turns the values of the world upside down. And this upside down pattern so contradicts the thinking and practice of the world that it creates an alternate kingdom, an alternate reality, a counterculture among those who have been transformed by it. And what Keller calls an alternate reality, which is in fact true reality, we learn that suffering is not for naught. That it has a purpose. That God is undoing the consequences of sin by redeeming the suffering it has caused. Did you hear that? That God is undoing the consequences of sin by redeeming the suffering it has caused. And nowhere is this more evident than on the cross and in the victorious shout of Christ. The other Gospels tell us that it was a loud shout. Tetelestai! Had his hands not been nailed down, I dare say that a a, a powerful fist would have punched the sky. The cross is a place of victory. Now, it does not make light of suffering, not at all, but it does remind us that no matter how things may appear now, no matter how real the suffering is, glory is coming indeed. 
In fact, because the Bible sees from this perspective, from the vantage point of true reality, the Bible says and refers to our sufferings as light and momentary afflictions that are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. And so when you suffer, or if you're suffering today in some way, Just let this word to tell us I minister to you. The cross is a place of hope. It's no wonder the cross is the symbol most often associated with Christianity. And then fourth and finally, to tell us I should change our view of life itself. One of my favorite movies is Braveheart. Won the 1996 Oscar for Best Picture. Tells the story of William Wallace and his 13th century countrymen and women and how they fought for and eventually won their freedom. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is near the end of the story and the very climax of the movie itself. Now, it's a spoiler alert. But as I thought about this, this movie's over 20 years old, and so if you've not yet seen it, that's on you. (laughs) Wallace has been taken captive, and he's being publicly shamed. The English hope to make a spectacle of him, and thus dash all Scottish hope and squelch their quest for freedom. He's literally being tortured. And they want him to cry out for mercy. They, they want him to show weakness to really make a point with his people. He endures one painful cruelty after another, and then he appears to be weakening. It seems he's finally been broken, and he's ready to give in, and his executioner leans in. But to his surprise, Wallace gathers every ounce of strength he has left and shouts with all his might just one word. Freedom. Although he did it with much more oomph. And then he died. And that one word, delivered emphatically by one man, with his dying breath, signaled a change and propelled the people of Scotland to live free. And in the same way, but obviously, obviously, obviously to an immeasurably greater degree, when Jesus cried out, Tetelestai, He means to propel us forward into a whole new way of life. A new way of looking at life. A new lens through which we look. A new purpose in life. Because He has finished the work, He means to 
set us free to live in its fullness. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Because all was finished at the cross. Because all was finished at the cross. We are free to live in the fullness of who God is. The fullness of who we are before Him. The fullness of all that God is doing in our lives and in our world. Be free in Christ. Let this word to tell us I change your view of forgiveness, your view of holiness, your view of suffering, and your view of life itself. Because he finished his divine work in absolute triumph, be free to follow him in absolute trust. Amen. Amen. Set us free. Day by day, moment by moment, God, help us to live in the freedom you've secured for us. Forgive us for the many times we put ourselves back in bondage, either through expectations, human expectations, or the pursuit of sin, or failure to live holy lives, or wrong view of suffering and really a skewed and improper view of life itself. God, set us free again. Let us live in the freedom of Jesus. Let us be free indeed for His glory and for our eternal good. Amen.